0: Hi, this is Gary Rogowski. Welcome to the Northwest Woodworking Studio Podcast. Splinters. Winter time. Time to start getting to the bench, practice, think about some new new ideas, new designs, new approaches. We have a design open house coming up this Wednesday, December 4th, called Gathering Inspiration. I am pleased to have joining me two very creative and interesting cats. Jim Meehan is a He's an author, an educator, a bar operator. Uh, he wrote uh, the PDT cocktail book, and he also wrote this pretty cool book called and's Bartender Manual. Uh, he gave me a copy last week, and I've been I've been just reading it. It's great. I mean, I'm, I'm not much of a cocktail guy, but it's fascinating, the stuff that he talks about in this book. It's really great, and great images put together really nicely, so check it out. Uh, really fun. And he worked at some of New York's most revered restaurants, including the Pegu Club, which is an interesting spot down, way down in the village. He opened a an award-winning bar called PDT in 2007. He's got another branch out in Hong Kong. Anyway, he moved uh, to Portland a few years back, and now he's working on cocktail menus for American Express different approach than my own as a furniture maker, but there's so much for us to chat about. And joining us will be Jose Medellis. Jose is also an author of a great book called The Stoic Drummer, a, a book of aphorisms, which I find delightful and pithy and fun to read. And there's some, there's some good ones in there. And yeah, it's about drumming, but it's also about being alive in the world. And, uh, He's a fun guy and a very interesting fellow that started a drum shop some years back called Revival Drum Shop here in Portland. And people come from all over the world to come and check out his drums there. Pretty cool. He's also uh, was the drummer for the Breeders, uh, played with a bunch of different folks, and uh, he'll be joining us on Wednesday as well. So if you're in town, you should come and join us. Wednesday at 6. Should be pretty interesting as we talk about gathering inspiration. I'm going to give you a little preview of what I'm going to chat about. See what you think. Let me first talk about these design open houses and their genesis. These are chats like the Chautauquas of old or those that Robert Persick speaks of in his uh, highly influential book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It stems from my sense that People think of woodworkers as, you know, the slow ones. The ones, you know, who couldn't do that well in class. You know, the thinking was just too much for them. Maybe they should pick up a trade, do something with their hands. And uh, in response to that, and I've had people say that to me. Oh, you're a carpenter or you're a, oh, you work with your hands. As if that's some sort of brand of ignorance, astonishing the myopia of the world. I started these design open houses, oh, probably six, eight years ago now, and once or twice a year bring in someone who's got a very different perspective than I do, and we talk about big ticket items, and it's great fun to see where this conversation leads, and all sorts of people show up to listen in and add their two cents, and it's it's why um, I consider the studio a school of thought, because we do consider these these issues. Anyway, I hope you'll join us. I'm going to talk a little bit about something that I'm writing about now. I'm working on a book on creativity. Let me first um, chat about this. I just put this down today. It's a little rough around the edges, but it's called my muse. I think we need to be clear about our our creativity and our creative urges. You need to honor your muse and love it and obey it and cherish it. You also need to act towards your creative side like she's a bitchy mistress or a Bored, paid gigolo, minister to them each day like there is no tomorrow. You need to make them scream with delight that you are paying attention to them, that you need them, that they are important as air to you, these muses. Your muses need to feel used up every day you have turned your attention to them, for otherwise they will grow lazy and ugly and whiny. All right, it's a strange analogy, but not too far off either. A muse is very much like a lover. If you pay them no attention, they get anxious and then suspicious and demanding and pouty and moody. And that's not terrible. That's not the terrible part. It's when they stop talking to you, however, that's when it's all over. Then it's done. And we can't have that. You need your muse. Like we need air, we need our muse. How to gather inspiration has been one of the great fears of every creative being who has ever lived. What if I stop hearing the voices in my head? What if I stop getting ideas? What if my work lacks balance or vision, thought, value? Then what? These are the questions that loom over our head each day we sit down with a pen or a pencil or a paintbrush. What if I try today and nothing comes out? Or one of those days that blossoms on the horizon when I look up and see the weeks of effort, this just happened to me, that I've put into something, and finally the scales have fallen from my eyes to reveal a steaming pile of crap sitting on my bench. Or my computer screen. All this time I thought I was doing something great. My head was down. I was busy. I finally had something of value to work on. And I put all my energy into it. And worked it. And reworked it. And combed its lovely hair. And polished its face. And painted its nails. And when I looked up one day. When I really saw what I had done. All I could see were the warts. The scars. The misshapen features. The limp. I finally saw where it was not only bad. But truly, completely, awfully bad. Finally I could see the truth. Those days, your muse is staring out the window, ignoring you, not standing over your shoulder saying, oh, do this, oh, try that, that's great, now do this. No. On those days, which we all have, where we truly suck at what we do, we are certain that our muse is finding his nails on a brick or painting lipstick on her eyebrows. Something to do, anything to do, but look at the garbage I've managed to bake in the other room. My muses ignore me on this day, like I've contracted a case of the terminal uglies. This is what is important to note. One needs to be selfish with and obedient to a muse. One needs to court them with flowers and chocolates and steaming cups of mulled wine, whatever Her Highness needs, so that she tells me what is supposed to happen next. So the work continues to come out of me. I need to be regular in my selfishness toward her. I need to be as jealous of my time with my muse as you are with your actual lover, with your actual good friend, or with your own health. I need to open and maintain a line of communication with my muse like like she is that ocean freighter docked offshore looking so majestic and still. So very still. It's so still out there. Nothing ain't happening on deck. Quiet. My muse is quiet. You need to get out there and semaphore like hell. Get a message to him. Tell her, hey, I'm over here. Help me out. Give me an idea. Give me inspiration today to keep working on this pile of rubble. Let something emerge that has some sense to it. For if you ignore your muse, if you do not maintain a practice with it, she will turn from you, and it will be a long, slow trip back into her good graces. The muse is jealous and capricious and uncaring about your needs. See to it. See that you attend to hers every day that you can. If only to send her a note that means, I love you, don't abandon me, and then take her for a walk. Yes, this muse that we court is a uh, is a curious thing, but I, I, I believe in them. The Greeks had, what, nine? Nine that they named uh, for various uh, arts, from dancing to poetry to theater. And those muses, they speak to us. But some days we have them, and some days we are lost. They have shut up shop on us. And so we need to get out. We need to gather information. And I can think of no better way than going for a hike and filling my eyes with so much to see. Oh, there's a chickadee now. I'm looking out my window up here in the snow. Haven't seen the chickadees yet today. And gathering information is the, is the best thing I think one can do when you're stuck. Keep looking, keep digging, keep adding stuff to the mix. It is important and vital that we keep our eyes and ears and senses open to everything around us because we don't live in this bubble. We are not automatically creative. Well, some of us are, I suppose, but the rest of us schmoes got to work. We've got to work hard at this stuff. I'm going to tell you another story. This happened, uh, oh, some 25 years ago or so. I was, um, well, I had, uh, I had been building furniture for about 25 years. And I'd grown a bit tired of the struggle. My body was wearing out a little bit. And I was trying to figure out my next move. And I thought I would head out to this artist community. It was out in Vermont. And it housed and fed painters and poets for two weeks or longer, if you had a mind for it. And I I stayed out there for a month. And this haven was right down the road from nowhere, Vermont, and up a ways from Despair, Vermont. It was in the middle of nowhere. Lots of bare maple trees, snow slathered about like pudding all around them. Lots of folks rode snowmobiles out here to go get their beer at night. That way they would hit a tree rather than another car. And in the middle of this pristine wilderness of sameness and conformity was this artist and writer's retreat and me. The imposter. I spent four weeks in a the studio there. Dish clearing and washing in the kitchen helped me to pay my way. I got a partial scholarship from the Regional Arts Council, but I sat in my little studio, tiny room with a table and a chair, and stared at the blank walls trying to imagine my future. I did a little drawing. My pencil sketches uh, were passable as representations of some object or person. I put together a little piece of sculpture or two, carved a mask with a few tools that I brought with me, But I was there to change my life. I was there to find some inspiration. I went there to think and to plot, to do something new with my skills and to become something more creative. I went to the nearby college, read books, listened to music. I took a life drawing class once. That was fun. And it wasn't my first attempt at this, but I was so out of practice drawing the nude. I was so out of practice. And I tried and tried to nuance this one model onto my page, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't get her shapes and shadows down, and finally I gave up. At the end of the session, I walked up to her, and I apologized, and I showed her my drawing. I explained that I had turned her into a cabinet. It was the best that I could do then. It was the best that I could do. And that's when I met these writers there. Now, some of them, I think, were there to pen their memoirs or work on them until the words cried out on the page for them to stop. There were a bunch of poets there to stare moodily out at the world and follow their teacher's god figure around and not associate with the rest of us, us mere mortals. They ate together. They traveled together. It's like a pack. But they were still marvelous people, and I loved to hang out around them and talk about writing with them because I, I wanted to do more of it myself. At the end of the two weeks that I was there, we had this going away party for the folks who were leaving us. And it was a studio tour as well. And folks just wandered about, wandering in and out of studios as they chatted with friends they would never see again and looked at paintings that made you gasp in surprise what to say. And I ended up talking with this one poet. He was a middle school teacher and some from somewhere in the Northeast. And he was so grateful for this experience. He had He had met some great people, but it's not that he had learned so much about his poetry or he had taken great strides in his meter or rhyme schemes or learned Petrarch sonnets or Shakespeare's. He felt gratitude for the gift of understanding. He said to me, the only ones who understand this life is us. And I thought, oh, he felt so alone in his world. He felt so desolate in his solitude. Felt like a visitor to a foreign shore, wondering why he was there among the curious and incomprehensible natives that he worked with and taught. There was no help for that. He understood something that most of the world chose to ignore that looking at our life in an honest fashion, at our emotions, our struggles, and translating them onto a page or a canvas or a drum kit is a difficult task. And it's hard to pursue these truths, especially when you feel like you're the only one in the cave who paints. Everyone else wants to go out and watch another mastodon get killed. So there's a difference between solitude and loneliness that we often choose to gloss over. And being alone is, is presumed to be bad. I want to be with my friends. I want to hang. Let's get in a crowd. And that way I don't have to think about my stuff, my life, my work, my obligations. But when do you have time to create or to practice your skills or to try and fail at something? For me, this time is only when I'm alone. And if I am honest with myself, I'm a complete knucklehead some days in this practice of mine. I work in fits and starts and stutters and nothing is very good. I edit and change and go back to the start and edit again. And I'm afraid to move forward, carve a new line, or put something new down on the page. Until maybe after half an hour or so and my pulse rate has dropped and my eyes start to focus and my grip has become more sure and the work starts to flow out of me. And now it's not half bad. It might even be good that day. I cannot explain this state. It is not an ecstatic one, although sometimes it flirts with this sense. It is not triumphant or majestic or even planned. But when I have this flow, the sense that I am one with my work and my dreams and my expectations and I know what I can do and my vocabulary is at the ready for me to grab whatever I need to make this thing work, then I know I'm in a place that is good and rare and I try to stay there as long as I can. It's different each time. The same sense of grateful fatigue and satisfaction that something good has happened. Not everything, not every time. But something good I know has occurred, and I'll look tomorrow and see what I find. This flow, this space, this zone, as athletes and musicians and scientists refer to, this is the creative time. When you get there, you don't let go until you absolutely have to. Use up your energies, use up yourself, let the work flow through you. Onto the page, onto the canvas, onto the instrument that you use. This is the gift from the gods, the fire that Prometheus stole. When you have it in your grasp, don't let go, even though it's hot and dangerous. If solitude is a necessary part of any life, then we have to learn to use it, cherish it, nurture our solitude, because in it we can come to learn to come to some sort of peace with our demons. Maybe not a full truce all the time, but a ceasefire every once in a while. Some small moments when you can cut yourself some slack and learn to listen to yourself and produce some intelligible work. Work that you enjoy and hope maybe some others will respond to as well. You have to reveal yourself. You're not like everyone else. It's okay. It's all right to be different. Uh, Gretchen, a, a playwright friend of mine, once told me that the best way for an audience to accept you is to show who you are. Expose all your faults, your foibles, your ticks and time bombs on the stage. Give yourself up to the audience and they will accept you because in you they see themselves. If you hide something, the audience will know that. They will sense it and not trust you or your words. Honesty is rewarded. Reveal yourself. There are times when we choose to be alone to figure stuff out And then there are times when we are forced by circumstances or chance to be apart, and it can feel okay, not scary. The weather's good, you feel good in your body, and you're doing something you like to do. This type of alone can actually feel really good. When I first started this practice, it felt unnerving. In time, I realized that my solitude helped. It helped me produce work and to believe in my own strengths and to work with my own talents, however meager they seemed. My alone time helped me to see the beauty of the world, to listen to my footsteps on a trail, to see the gift of friendship and love in a life. Being alone helped me to be better with others. The struggle that I could have with myself, the wrestling match and shouting and cursing and stamping at my own damn stupidity again, could be done in privacy. Let no one witness me swearing so proficiently at myself. Let no one see how profoundly inept I felt some days. Let no one see me sigh and weep at my failures. Get all that done in privacy. Be alone with yourself. Then present the world with your perfectly imperfect finished product. I'd like to end this little chat with you with a quote from Jose, Jose Medella's book, The Stoic Drummer. Someone despises your plane. That's their problem. I love that quote. I just love it. It's not an attitude. It's belief in yourself. Yeah. I hope you can make it out to our Design Open House this Wednesday, December 4th, 6 o'clock. We'll get started. And it should be great fun. Some very different perspectives will be presented. And I hope you can join us. If not, keep listening. Buy me a coffee on coffee.com. And ask me a question. I'm happy to answer them. Check out our schedule of winter classes. We've got them coming up. Winter time, time to be at the bench, time to learn some new stuff. Time to stoke that curiosity. It's good stuff. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.